My name is Kelly Wallace. I am a writer and sexual assault survivor. I've undergone decades of therapy to overcome what I experienced, and writing is a part of my healing process. In this podcast, we will talk with other writers who have also overcome sexual violence. Their stories are often neglected, but to me, they are an inspiration, and I'm excited to be able to share them with you. Welcome to Recognize Our Power. The topics we are discussing are sensitive and do come with a trigger warning. Please take care of yourself. If you are in need of resources, please visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com, and click on the resources page. I think the first step is always to take an honest reckoning with where you are. So what types of processing have you done in the past, if any? And that can be really different if you're a person at middle age who just had a molestation memory show up than maybe if you were assaulted in college but then had great therapeutic care for a while. And also really asking, like, what's the difference for me between having talked about something versus having done embodied practices because trauma is not just about the cognitive. So much of healing from trauma in a way that makes writing possible and healthy at the same time is understanding that somatic connection. Welcome to the Recognize Our Power podcast, a podcast for readers, writers, sexual assault survivors, and beyond. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. Thank you for listening and subscribing. I'm so excited to dive in and introduce you to a wide variety of writers who are themselves survivors of sexual violence. I'm so grateful to be speaking to our guest today, Catherine Standifer. She earned her MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of Arizona in 2014. Her book, Lightning Flowers, was a finalist for the 2021 Kirkus Prize in Nonfiction. The book was also a New York Times book review editor's choice slash staff pick and the New York Times book review's group text pick for November 2020. Named one of O, the Oprah Magazine's best books of fall 2020, it has been featured in People Magazine, on NPR's Fresh Air, and on the Goop podcast. Lightning Flowers was a finalist for the 2021 Arizona New Mexico Book Award in autobiography slash memoir. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. You're welcome. Um, so for our listeners, can you share for us a little bit about your growing up years? Sure. I grew up in a suburb outside Chicago called Arlington Heights, and I lived with my two parents and three sisters. And in most ways, it was a pretty normalized upper middle class white childhood. Uh, I lived in a uh, tract home in a suburban subdivision. I lived among a lot of strip malls. Uh, I went to a lot of soccer games and softball games. I grew up in the Methodist church and went to church camp. (laughs) So I'm sure there are 
interesting specific things to talk about with my childhood, but most generally, I think if people know normalized white culture, yes, <laughs> that is the exact landscape of my childhood. Yes. <laughs> All right. So can you um, give our listeners like a short introduction to your book, Lightning Flowers, and how it how it came into this world? Sure. Uh, Lightning Flowers is a book that tells the story of my troubled relationship to my own implanted cardiac defibrillator. When I was 24 years old, I was living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, so the opposite of <laughs> Midwestern <laughs> suburbs. And I was working as a ski instructor and teaching climbing at a local gym and leading hiking trips. And one day I randomly went into cardiac arrest in a parking lot. And I was uninsured at the time. And so a pretty wild story ensued in which I was trying to understand what the real threat was to me of this uh, genetic arrhythmia that mm -hmm. I carried and also how to access the care I needed while uninsured within a system where it was still legal to discriminate against people who had pre-existing conditions. So I ended up quitting my life in Jackson Hole and I moved to Boulder, Colorado, and I was able to get my surgery by establishing residency and my younger sister's surgeon, because she has the same condition, yeah. her surgeon said he would help me and was able to donate his fee and get other practitioners on board. And ultimately, I ended up with about 25K in medical debt instead of 180000 wow. as it was originally billed as. So having had that experience and some others that are related to it as such a young person and having always been a writer, I always knew that I would write about it in some form. And originally, I tried to engage that topic through fiction. Uh, I had been a fiction writer and a poet before I passed out that day. And it just became true that I really couldn't write about the experience until I engaged it as part of my own body. And so I made this very awkward, hesitant switch over to nonfiction. And when I applied for MFA programs in nonfiction a few years later, it was really the first time I had written that genre. But I just understood that this story probably needed to be true, not just in the fictional way, but in the factual way. Right. And so um, I went off to University of Arizona MFA to write about sex and death was my goal. <laughs> and Lightning Flowers is what became of the death portion. <laughs> my second book will be much more about sex and sex assault. Gotcha. Awesome. Thank you for that great synopsis. And in your book, you navigate trauma on the body so wonderfully and really paint such a great picture for readers about how all of the medical procedures impacted you in, in every area of your life. Can you talk about how writing that experience was for you? Like, the lived experience yeah. of writing that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the real question, right? Yeah. There's a whole book behind the book. <laughs> the story of what it takes to write these things in ways that don't just re-express the trauma, but that actually are able to crisply make something of it. Yes. I was working on Lightning Flowers for quite a while, you know, from from about 2011 through the beginning of 2016, from a space of relative able-bodiedness and medical calm. Um, there, I had taken, in 2012, three shocks to the heart, mm. which is the scene that opens the book. Right. Those were accidental shocks due to an error in my settings. <laughs> Hashtag cyborg problems. Mm. 
But otherwise, I really had been given the gift of time to integrate my experiences. And so writing about the things that had happened earlier was, you know, not necessarily easy, but I think I'd had enough body work, acupuncture, time to process changes in my identity and and cry it out. And that was somehow more within my reach. The weird thing that happened while writing Lightning Flowers was about halfway through the process, my device buzzed and let me know that it had low battery. And I made the decision to get a new one. And while we were in trying to put that new device in, it was discovered that a wire had broken inside me. And that set off this whole other chain of events that ends up being a part of the second half of Lightning Flowers. And in particular, there was a surgery where we tried to remove the broken wire and it snapped off inside me. Yes. And then a further attempt to get it, strip the insulation off of it. And the the trauma that I suffered from that surgery in particular just required something entirely different of me. I really woke up a new person and it took a long time for me to understand that that was true. The physical symptoms that I was having were so much more severe. There was a period where I could barely walk Mm. because of what was happening in my hip and in my calves. And at the same time, my nervous system had gotten so stretched out of whack by this extended healthcare battle that I had after the election of President Trump, where I was so afraid the Affordable Care Act would be overturned and I would no longer have insurance and I would be left with this wire stuck in me. And so I really went into overdrive and fought and fought for this this access to a specialist that ultimately <laughs> they were wonderful, but they kind of just gave me more bad, bad news that it was going to take a while to integrate. And so the writing of it forced me to face those echoes that were buried in my body. Uh, I sometimes think of it as shrapnel uh-huh. and and also to really come into alignment with the reality of what is inside my body right now in a way that I think I'd kind of been pretending <laughs> in certain yeah. ways that things were fine. Yeah. So in 2018, I hit this patch of really procrastinating a lot with the book. I was at these various writing residencies, and I really wasn't getting anything done. And it took a colleague of mine at the Logan Nonfiction Program at the Cary Institute for Global Good. Her name was Netta Toulouse-Amnani. You should read her book, too. Okay. Um, she, she said to me, like, you need to be in the bathtub way more than you are. <laughs> she really <laughs> called me out that I was trying to write these intense things and putting myself in a freeze state. And not following through on what it actually meant to do that type of work Uh, as a writer. And so in the next place that I was working from, which was this very isolated little earth home in New Mexico Uh at the end of a mesa, I had an amazing somatic experiencing therapist who I was having calls with. And she was really teaching me how to notice when subtle shifts in my system were occurring And to give them room and stay with them. And so sometimes we'd have entire sessions where I would start crying and she would kind of not let me just charge through like a barreling train. She would make me actually stop and have that emotional reaction. And I would think it was ending and then it would come back and there was more. And it was like, God, am I paying all this money just to cry in front of you? Uh But what, what she was teaching me was how far we all have been trained to suppress, suppress, move on faster, not allow things to move through. Yes. And I was also working with body workers, mostly who were intuitive in some way. And so as they felt different things in my body, 
I would be breathing into those and really feeling what was there in mm. order to release it. And so all of this gave me the I, I sort of built the muscles, built the capacity yeah. to then go into some of the most difficult scenes in Lightning Flowers. And as something came up, I would pause what I was doing. And sometimes it meant I needed to scream, uh-huh. the scream that I didn't get to scream or the scream I didn't get to finish. Sometimes it meant kind of wild, different varieties of breathing that wanted yeah. to come out of me. Sometimes it meant shaking. And it also meant... Really moving at the pace of integration, meaning I would do something hard and then I would go for the long walk. Mm. I would do something hard and then I would do yoga or take a nap. And that is an enormous privilege. I can tell you at this point in my life, I was living a lot on credit cards. (laughs) And I actually sort of mortgaged my future creative life, which is something that I'm confronting now. But I just really couldn't hold down other work while I was in that deep process because it's so required that I not have this voice in the back of my head telling me that it was time to wrap it up, time to just you know, come back to being a normal put together person. When you're really doing trauma work, you have to let the entire thread of something unspool. Mm -hmm. And it just gave me so much more room to then write the scenes the way that would serve the craft best, Mm -hmm. as opposed to writing the scenes in the way that I could, given that I hadn't totally processed them, which I I can now sniff that out in writing sometimes, that something was still a little bit unprocessed and didn't really find its final form. Yeah. Wow. That's such a, that's such an amazing story to hear about, you know, how that you were able to write through that um, trauma. Um, And so kind of taking a step back a little bit, can you share um, for our listeners a little or as much as about your sexual assault and how it impacted your writing at that time or how it's impacting the current work that you're working on right now? So not a lot of people know this, but I actually consider sex assault to be the real origin of my life as a nonfiction Uh writer, as opposed to just the story that I told about lightning flowers at the beginning there. I was sexually assaulted when I was 22. I was a few years out of college. I just finished up a summer camp job, moved into a little cabin, was in the process of finding adult life for the first time. The date of my assault was the night of October 3rd to October 4th. So you can see how early that is (laughs) in my first fall out of college. And I was lonely Mm. and had decided to go to a kegger that I was invited to by someone that I worked with at the climbing gym. Mm-hmm. My mom used to always say, you never know who you'll meet there, <laughs> which was true in a completely messed up way. <laughs> and, and you know, the long story short is that someone invited me to go to a hot tub and I thought a group of people were coming and no one else came. And what was so striking about that situation and that night was that, you know, I already shared my very white bread childhood. I grew up steeped in the abstinence culture that so many of us are. My parents weren't fundamentalists or anything, but they did bear what I would consider kind of a normal level of sexual shame as we just are all steeped in in this culture. And I went to a school where there were presentations where, you know, the speaker held a rose aloft and plucked off one petal, 
because you slept with that guy and then you pluck off another petal because you slept with that guy. And what do you have to give your husband at the end? A thorny stick, right? So that was kind of what was in me. And I had this strange stubbornness around wanting to have my first kiss be with someone who really deserved me, who I was really excited about. And it just kept not happening. And Mm -hmm. over time, it really grew into a sort of neurosis where it was like, who could possibly be good enough? And I was so terrified and I felt so far behind everybody else. So the night of my sex assault, I had never been kissed. Mm -hmm. And this person in the hot tub I said no verbally for over an hour before he actually made physical movements toward Mm. me. And it was kind of this final deflation of a life that had had so many no's. And it's almost like I ran out of no's. And so the morning after, you know, when I woke up and I looked at this bag of clothes hanging on the door that were still wet from the hot tub and was like, oh, my God, that's real. That actually happened. It was, and and I know I'm not the only one who considers days like this sometimes to be this way, but it was almost like another birthday because it really was like, now I have to see who I'm actually going to be on the other side of this thing that mattered to Uh me being totally gone. Yeah. And I, I just made a decision immediately because so many people had known me. (laughs) This is ridiculous, but we jokingly called me the virginator. Because so many people knew this was like a thing for me. Yeah. I just started telling everyone that I could and really noticing who was able to tolerate that story and who was able to support and who wasn't. But the inside this actual valley, which it's wild, I'm sitting here looking at the Grand Teton, finally living here again after so many years away. It was in this valley, and I just didn't have that many friends yet because I had just gotten there, and many of the summer people had moved on. And so I was left with, like, how do I hold this myself? And what happened was I was – writing meant the most to me of anything in the world other than maybe Northwest Wyoming. And so I just spent all my time in my cabin, in the library, writing and writing and writing. And this natural nonfiction impulse really, like, popped up and started pulling me forward in that I started reading books about rape. And I started reading books about – Oh, I found like this old police manual that talked about the different types of rapists. And I found the profile of the one. Like this is the kind of obsessive <laughs> research and work that that took me forward in Lightning Flowers. Yeah. And for folks who haven't read the book, the part I didn't introduce earlier is that Lightning Flowers is also a global journey to understand my cardiac defibrillator in terms of its supply chain. Yeah. So I wanted to know if the creation of a life-saving device might cause loss of life elsewhere. And I visited mines and factories around the world. And so that's that same obsessive, like going down the wormhole, kind of needing information for myself, for my soul, for my continued ability to function. And yet that is also a very particular storyteller trait. And I like to say I'm not really a journalist, but I find myself in the middle of very interesting stories. And I like asking the question as deeply as I can. And so in that way, you know, and it'll be interesting to see how that very, very early writing about rape in the fall of 2007, Uh winter of 2008, it'll be interesting to see how much of it shows up in this next book that I'm working on that is called Skin Hunger, and it's a sexual reckoning. Can you tell us a little bit about that work that you're on right now? 
Yeah, my elevator pitch will sound baggier, and that's because I'm still kind of in the depths yes. of working out yeah. what it is and yeah. what it isn't. Mm -hmm. There was a version of this book that my previous agent and I had pitched, and we could have sold, but it would have meant not debuting with Lightning Flowers mm -hmm. and debuting with this other book instead. And on the other side of Lightning Flowers coming out and on the other side of the pandemic, what these questions of sex and desire and singleness mean to me has changed so much. And so that's really why I'm still learning how to talk about the book. There was sort of a more codified form. But the way that I'm thinking about it right now is that it's a book reckoning with how someone ends up be being single for almost their entire adult life. I have only had one boyfriend for two weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or not for two weeks, sorry. Uh, in, in middle school, I had boyfriends for like six days. Yeah, yeah. Um, for two yeah. years, for yeah. two years. This one boyfriend plays a role in Lightning Flowers. Yes, yes, yes. And he's very interestingly placed because I met him less than a year after the rape. Mm -hmm. And I really see the opening of Skin Hunger as exploring this I, th I think it probably opens, actually, with the morning after the sex assault and this uh -huh. cleaving of lives, having uh -huh. been one person, being both, you know, destroyed in a certain way, but also freed to explore sexuality in a way I wouldn't have allowed myself if I weren't, quote unquote, ruined. And I want to be clear for listeners, I don't believe that anyone is ruined by sex assault, but that's sort of the abstinence yeah. view of, you know, this virginity that's held on a pedestal. So... For me, it's about looking back at that abstinence culture, what I was steeped in, my sense of my own goodness, and really examining how before the rape and after, there were a series of relationships that were quite intense that I had with men, but where they were not my boyfriends and they never kissed me, but they mm. treated me like their girlfriend mm -hmm. and there was so much sensuality there mm -hmm. and really kind of chewing on like, what is that? And, and they're beautiful stories. Then the the material changes a lot sort of after the lightning flowers era because I went to work as a sex educator for a small abortion clinic. Uh -huh. And so I really got trained out of a lot of the shame that had been instilled in me as a kid. And I was answering questions for teenagers in classrooms through the question box, over a text line, over an internet Q&A, as I was asking some of those questions myself, kind of learning how mm. to have casual sex for the first time, and being mentored by these hilarious bra burner second wave feminists who were the nurse practitioners at this clinic. And I was also the manager of a clinic that offered free care to anyone under 20. So mm -hmm. I, who had previously been such a judgy teen, <laughs> you know, talking about everyone else's sex life. Now I was really responsible for being the compassionate face when they walked in and really seeing the diversity of people who are sexually active in their teens. They weren't who I thought. The stories were never what I thought. It was incredibly humbling and really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the later part of this book is really this wrestling between my earlier self who wanted love so badly and who was so obsessed with love, and then this very empowered self who learned how to get what she wanted sexually uh -huh. and had a lot of fun in the process. And also, at the end of the day, I really do want to experience partnership. There are types of intimacy you can't access through just casual sex, and no matter what I do, I can't make 
myself meet the person who I naturally fall in love with. I can't make people pick me. And, you know, there's a lot of healing that I know that this book is going to require because these are some of my most open wounds. Yes, yes. I mean, and I feel like that's so that's so relatable, especially, you know, just with, I mean, I'm part of Gen X, but with like the younger generally generations under me, um, so many people are just going so long without being immersed in relationships because of the internet, you know, and the hookup apps and, and all that stuff. So. It is part of why I'm calling the book Skin Hunger, yeah. because I think I think there's a real difference between care and intimacy and some of these things that we can get from places that are not a singular partner. You know, yeah. part of what a book about singleness is about is where your erotic energy goes when you're not in partnership. Uh-huh. And for me, I have this deep relationship with the land. I've developed this deep relationship with myself. Yeah. I have a type of community that I think a lot of people are hungry for and don't have because yeah. they tend to silo themselves with just their partner. Uh-huh. And because I was ill, I had to really call on people to show up for me, yes. stand up for me. They took me to doctor's appointments and the post office. They brought me food. They bathed me. I mean, so and I really have benefited in some ways from that singleness. And then animal friends, in addition to yeah. relationship with the, with the land, like how many of us find intimacy with animals. And yet none of that is the same as being a body that is regulated alongside someone else and experiencing mm-hmm. the literal stimulation of the nerve sensors in the skin. You know, skin hunger is it real. Hurts. All of us who lived alone through the pandemic can really feel that. Yeah. And there are regulating functions in the body, hormones that all have to do with being touched. So what does it mean to live your life untouched in some of these core ways? Yes, 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 yes. You are listening to Recognize Our Power. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace, and my guest is Catherine Standifer. We will be right back after this break. Welcome back to Recognize Our Power. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace, and we are talking with Catherine Standifer. I know I was uh, poking around on your website a little bit, and it sounds like you have a service where you help writers navigate their own stories of trauma. I, th- I think it, it you call yourself a, a trauma midwife. Excuse me if I'm butchering that. Um, trauma can, writing doula. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sorry. I was, I was close-ish. Can you, can you talk about some of that work that you do to kind of help people out with that? Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite things to talk about because I don't think we have enough conversation about it. There's this widespread belief that writing heals trauma. Mm-hmm. And there's the set of James Pennebaker studies that show that undergrads who were writing about difficult topics on a regular basis in his study expressed fewer healthcare visits and Ooh. better immunological markers. 
And this is really striking information for all of us to have. He theorizes that there's actually a holding back function in the body where when you are holding in your stories, you are using energy that could be used for other things in your system. And so this is part of why it's so important to own your story, to be able to share and not just carry around these big calcified secrets inside you. Yeah. And yet, you know, what I really experienced in the writing of my own rape and also what I started seeing in people in my classes between right after I graduated from grad school, so 2015, 2016, I was noticing that people in my illness writing classes and uh, sex writing classes were really finding themselves dropping into such a triggered state that they actually couldn't continue doing their work. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to help them. What I did with my own rape, I wrote it and I wrote it and I wrote it and I wrote it. And I'll actually never know how much damage I did by strengthening that neural pathway. I really think I made things worse by living there. And part of that is what yeah. happens when you're a writer and, you know, this is how you move through the world. All I knew to do was get it down and try to make sense of it and mm-hmm. try to bring sources to it. But because I wasn't being held or touched because I didn't have other forms of therapy or body work in my life. I really do feel like I created uh, a deeper level of PTSD than might have been there because that neural pathway got so deep. And so some of the writers that I was working with in these illness writing and sex writing classes after grad school, I was like, I really wonder if I'm doing them more harm than good And what can I learn about how we write stories without breaking ourselves? What does it actually look like? You know, obviously, we need to write these stories. Society needs them. And they do contain a particular type of medicine. But what does it mean to really hold people while they're doing that? And so I enrolled at the Arizona Trauma Institute I can't call myself any type of practitioner because I'm not a mental health practitioner sort of at baseline, but I took the certified clinical trauma practitioner training Mm -hmm. and some of the other ones. And I really learned about this this dance between it's not that we should never be triggered. It's that when we get triggered, we have to be able to notice it. And as I was talking about earlier, respond at the pace of integration with resources. Mm -hmm. Because to just get triggered by what we're writing and push through, that's really, really hard on the body. And it's hard on the life. Anyone who's trying to write one of these trauma stories knows how hard it can be to transition back into getting things done for work Mm -hmm. and how it can bleed over to other parts of your life because you're not well regulated. You start snapping at people or you're in freeze and all you can do watch TV and you're missing deadlines. So what does it mean when the system, you know, our body doesn't know that the rape happened years ago. It thinks it's still happening now. That's the deal with how trauma is encoded in the body. So when it gets triggered, you have to respond as though it's happening now. How do I respond to this, this animal part of me that is trying to help trying to keep me safe, trying to have some kind of survival strategy. But that's going to get in the way of my thriving and even finishing the project. When we're in trauma, we're using our reptilian brain. And in order to create art, we need to be up in our human neocortex. So I studied at the Arizona Trauma Institute to create sort of a set of 
protocol for my own trauma writing classes. And then over time, as I was continuing to do my own trauma work, especially in that 2018 to 2020 period that I was talking about that was so intense for Lightning Flowers, Mm -hmm. I just worked with so many different types of practitioners. I had to go so deep. I really learned more about that pacing aspect. And I also learned that when people are writing trauma stories, they do need to have a mental health practitioner. And I try not to work with people if they don't also have a primary mental health practitioner they're working with. Yeah. But they also need someone who knows how to walk with them, who's not just a friend, you know, someone that they who's holding not only the trauma with them, which is something I've had to recognize about myself. I have an extraordinary capacity for other people's dark stories. I didn't know other people didn't have this (laughs) for a while. And then eventually it was like, wow, okay, this is, this is, it's developed through my own experiences, but it's also inborn. I'm not going to choke on what someone else is telling me. I actually have room to hold it with them, to emotionally process it with them. So what trauma writing doula Dulaying ends up looking like is we're meeting to think about what are the physiological hurdles mm-hmm. in your writing. So where is your body with the trauma? What have you already done? What practitioners can I connect you with that you might be ready for, primed for, mm-hmm. where that work is going to help move the story in your body? What social barriers are you facing? So what are the ways you've been taught that you can't talk about this thing or you have to talk about it in a certain way or if you talk about it, you're hurting so-and-so in your life and we really process those together? What are the craft challenges? So if we have fragmented memories, we have what feels like overwhelming darkness, we have, oh, I'm trying to think of what another one is, pacing issues, all of that, trauma shows up differently on the page and so how we make it a a beautiful and digestible story is different. Mm -hmm. How we sort of unleash its full narrative power is different. And then the last piece that I've really come into in the last few years through my own work is what are the spiritual invitations that this work dangles before you? So in order to tell these excruciating stories, we almost always have to go through a process of transformation. I think of experiences like medical trauma that I have been through, like rape that so many of us have been through, as partial initiations. The trauma, though, is only half of that process. Completing Mm -hmm. the initiation, if you are a writer, means going through that process of writing it and letting it make you become in some way. I had a mentor who used to say that wisdom comes from processing our experiences. If we don't take the time to reflect on our experiences, if we just have them and then like push them down and store them up in our body, there's no wisdom available to us. And if all of us are doing that, there's no wisdom available to the culture. So part of my work as a trauma writing doula is to help people really move things through their system because the way they're able to write it on the other side is totally different. And that is medicine that our culture needs. Definitely. Wow, that just sums up the trauma writing process so well. And I love that you are doing that important work. So I know I know you've touched on some of your own healing in this interview. What were some of the ways that you healed? I know that throughout the beginning of Lightning Flowers, you talked about how exercise and leading these backcountry tours was such an important part of your life. What role has like exercise, has that played for you? 
Wow. I mean, exercise is a really humbling part of my walk, mm-hmm. um, mostly because it is something I constantly lose and luckily have continued to regain. Mm-hmm. It's not as reliable a friend <laughs> when I am uh, not able-bodied. Yeah. And that's been very hard. Yeah. There's something for me in my personality type, my ADHD management, which I have to do without uh, medication because of my heart condition. Mm. Intense exercise mm-hmm. has always been really important to me. And that's just not always available yeah. or not always available in ways that I like. So I will say during the periods where – I sort of walk back up the staircase of fitness and I'm able to go trail running. I can't even tell you the level of triumphant that it makes me. But I learned very early on to be profoundly grateful for every little bit I have. If all I can do is hike, then I will hike. Mm -hmm. If all I can do is walk, I will walk. A lot of the healing modalities that I tapped into that have been most powerful are just incredibly embodied. And so uh, it's everything from somatic experiencing, which I mentioned earlier, and EMDR, which are more therapeutic solutions, to working with body workers, Reiki masters, holotropic breathwork, uh, psychedelic ceremonies. I'm trying to think so many. Acupuncture has been such a consistent friend to me. I've lived on the road for a lot of the last few years, too. And so there's really a challenge of like, okay, what can I do here? What can I do now? Uh, I had a very deep (laughs) Qigong practice during the pandemic, which was something that I could do from my house. Mm -hmm. And and so that was wonderful. But I would be lying if I didn't say that I hope (laughs) moving back to Wyoming is going to get me Further back into canyons and um, skiing more regularly and kind of coming back into the life that I lost 14 years ago Uh, when I passed out in the parking lot. So what what advice would you give to someone who wants to dive in and start exploring their own sexual assault through writing, whether it's just personal or they want to be a professional writer? Yeah, I think the first step is always to take an honest reckoning with where you are. So what types of processing have you done in the past, if any? And that can be really different if you're a person at middle age who just had a molestation memory show up Mm -hmm. than maybe if you were assaulted in college but then had great therapeutic care for a while. Mm -hmm. You might already be ready to do that. And and also really asking, like, what's the difference for me between having talked about something – Versus having done embodied Mm. practices because trauma is not just about the cognitive. So much of healing from trauma in a way that makes writing possible and healthy at the same time is understanding that somatic connection. So Mm. if you've only been in cognitive behavioral therapy and you haven't done, you know, a type of dancing that really helped or been on a Reiki table or a massage table or allowed things to move through at a physical level, that may be the work that's ahead of you. And so, you know, when a therapist is going to do EMDR sessions, they'll often have you make a list of your most painful moments (laughs) and then rate them on a scale of one to 10. And what they'll do is they'll start engaging, you know, EMDR, by the way, is um, eye movement 
desensitization and reprocessing. It has to do with bilateral stimulation of the brain and essentially being able to take what is acutely traumatic and like happening right now in our bodies and making it something that happened in the past. It repackages it cognitively so that we can look at it from an objective view as opposed to immediately going into fully re-experiencing it. And so, you know, when they're going to do EMDR and they have you create this scale of how painful are these memories, they will start with the lighter ones to build up this muscle, this tolerance, this capacity. And I would advise the same for writers. I do some activities in my trauma writing classes and with clients where we essentially create a tic-tac-toe grid and we'll take what is an acutely traumatic episode and break it down into nine different steps. And box five, the middle box, that's like where the heart of the trauma occurred. Box Mm -hmm. one is the um, beginning of that traumatic incident. And box nine is sort of the first moment of the new life or the last moment of that sequence of events, it's sort of like that moving out of it energy. Not that it's over, but that you're transitioning out of the acute portion. And so I'll often have them write those far out boxes first Mm. and just write those. We tend to be magnetized when we want to, quote unquote, write our trauma, write our assault. We tend to be magnetized to the red hottest part of it. And a lot of that is people being told their stories don't matter and Mm. then having the sense that the only part that matters is the most traumatic part. When actually what so many of us are trying to wrap our heads around is like, the grief of seeing the last moment before something happens and you know exactly what's going to happen and you're thinking about who you were before. And maybe Uh that's actually all we need to see. We don't need the rape on the page. We need to go up to the last moment. Or that waking up the morning after and having to face, this is a new life. I'm a new me. I am and I'm not, right? And so being able to find ways into that story that are not only supported and resourced therapeutically or on an embodied level or through the pacing of your day. If I'm going to write this, do I have time to go for a walk afterward? Do Mm -hmm. I have time to sit in nature? Or am I going to force myself to rush off somewhere and essentially be triggered and, and unable to unwind? If you can kind of pick out how the overall scenario looks and then also pick a narrative piece to enter into that has boundaries on it that mm-hmm. isn't the most intense part first that's going to serve you a lot better than just going right for the gullet <laughs> and you know you're you're just probably going to reactivate yourself and do you have the resources to tend to yourself afterward yeah. will you even be able to continue the writing if you get activated mm-hmm. to a certain level mm-hmm. definitely so, you know, just hearing you talk about your experience of, of working with others has been so beneficial in terms of, I think, so much of of our culture is pushing things down and just pushing through, pushing through, pushing through, and how how damaging that can be to not only your your writing, but you're just like your whole nervous, your central nervous system. So yeah. I think that was such an important thing to touch on today. And I really appreciate that you you went there. Where can our, our listeners find you? So my website is katherinestandiford.com. And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Girl Makes Fire. And uh, I'm also on Facebook. I have an author profile at Katherine E. Standifer. I'll link in the show notes to all of your socials and website. And to find out more about our podcast, please follow us on Facebook 
TikTok, and Instagram, or visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. If you have an extra few seconds, please leave us a review to help the algorithm. I'd like to thank my guest today. Be sure to check out our show notes and website, www.recognizeourpower.com. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. This podcast is produced by Three Wire Creative. <laughs>